security. Ann Joyce is a role model for many in the sense that she has been the founding editor of what is Middle East policy. It's a quarterly journal that is the leading one in the field and tackles uh, issues policy related uh, that no other journal does to the same extent. Uh, Ann Joyce has been doing this since the early 1980s. So more than a quarter of a century she's contributed uh, to policy related articles and essays in the esteemed journal Middle East Policy. Please welcome Ann Joyce. Thank you very much, and thank you to uh, John Duganthony and the National Council for having this program. <clears throat> it's broad, deep, and complex, and it uh, gives us all an opportunity to um, examine issues that uh, aren't in the public debate all the time, at least from this perspective. Um, I think we have to be a little humble when we talk about education. Um, we Americans tend to preach to others about it um, as if it were the philosopher's stone, whereby you could uh, transform base metals into gold. Um, not quite. Education is necessary, but not sufficient. And um, we also have to uh, talk about what um, kind of education we're talking about, what uh, is appropriate for any particular society. Um, are we talking about liberal arts ed education, um, critical thinking, technical training? Uh, there are many aspects to it. And when you see our uh, unemployment rate uh, at the moment and uh, the amount of discontent in our society um, about uh, jobs and careers and so forth, um, we have a lot of questions to answer ourselves. How do we fit our people into lives that are satisfying for them it's good to take this up uh, during an election season, too, because uh, the rhetoric out there is, uh, is very hostile. You can, um, you can feel the, um, what, the resentment and also the ignorance in the, the political debate. And uh, it, it's very painful, I think, for most of us. Um, in our field, we also um, are aware that uh, the political elite, the, the educated class, uh, are often very guilty of uh, groupthink and conventional wisdom. Um, it's also the case that, uh, of course, in the public debate, there's a great deal of ignorance bandied about. So um, preaching to others about education is uh, something I uh, hesitate to do. But um, at any rate, we have to all face the, the social divide that education sometimes produces. And I think um, the backlash against the uh, educated elite is, uh, is inevitable. We see it in our own country and um, other countries as well. Um, before I forget to do this, or if there's no time at the end, I want to pick up on something Chaz Freeman, my former boss, said this morning. And that is um, that public intellectuals should or have a duty to go out and try to mitigate uh, hatred of Muslims, which is everywhere in our society, regrettably. So go out and reprove somebody for prejudice uh, after this meeting. Our panel today is, uh, is wonderful, and uh, I know that because I watched the video of uh, Dr. Modi Al-Halaf's talk from last year. It's, um, it's really inspiring and, uh, and wonderful. Um, she will be our first speaker. I think I'll um, briefly um, introduce all of them right now, and then they can speak in order. Um, I'll let you read the more complicated um, biographical details, but she's the Director of Social and Cultural Affairs at the Saudi Cultural uh, Mission at the Embassy here in Washington. The next speaker will be uh, Ms. Magali Rowe, Senior Analyst for the Gallup Center for Muslim Studies. She does polling uh, among um, Arab youth and uh, more than that, which I'm sure she'll tell you about. And I think the polling doesn't all involve why do they hate us. Um, the final uh, panelist is Maggie Mitchell-Salem, who is well known to uh, Washington audiences from her work at the State Department and the Middle East Institute. Um, and she's the executive director of the Cotter Foundation International. It's um, in Washington and also in Cotter. Um, 
And our commentator will be uh, John Moran, who's the uh, distinguished diplomat in residence at the National Council on U.S.-Arab relations this year. He's uh, a career member of the U.S. Senior Foreign Service as well. So uh, it'll be his job to um, pick up on um, what the panelists have said and, uh, and ask provocative questions. Your questions will be included, of course, at the end as well. So I'll um, now turn the podium over to Dr. Modi Al-Khalaf. Assalamu alaikum. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. I'm honored to be here again among another distinguished panel and addressing an audience of this caliber. Uh, my first public debut to Western audiences was in 2003 when I started writing for Arab News. Those articles were mostly critical, asking for social change, predominantly regarding women's rights. Um, my Western audiences were very sympathetic and encouraging. The most frequent question I got was, what's it like living in Saudi Arabia? Like I said, asked with genuine sympathy. And to their surprise, my instant answer was always, with the same genuinity, are you kidding me? I would not want to be anywhere else in the world. Why? Um, I was living history every day, literally. Now, <clears throat> today, uh, well, actually, I'd give them an analogy. I'd also say, for you to understand better, because some people will criticize this, it was like standing in the exact center of a tornado, where you know that if you stand still, it could kill you, but if you move in any uncalculated way, it could be just as fatal. So the whole country was always calculating, moving, planning, keeping up speed with the changes in the global changes around the world. Now, today, this panel is on global education and employment challenges. Um, so much to say, so little time. So I'll focus on just how Saudi Arabia has met global education challenges and has tried to develop its human resources in an attempt to solve part, and emphasis on part, of the rising employment challenges in the region. <clears throat> so first of all, now the country has been built on five-year plans, developmental plans, since 1960. Um, we are currently in the ninth five-year developmental plan, and it includes a whopping $385 billion in new spending. So how is Saudi Arabia going to utilize it the next five years? Well, over 50%, fortunately, will go to developing our human resources. 19% um, to social and health, uh, a little over 15% to economic resources. Um, over 7% to transportation and communication, and 7% to housing. This is how we would look on a pie chart. So I think Saudi Arabia is actually uh, a fine example for a panel like this. Now, of course, higher education is key to the new developmental plan. We're increasing the capacity of universities to jump from 500,000 to a 1.7 million. We're increasing postgraduate students to 5% of all students, and that's by diversifying our postgraduate programs. We're encouraging university collaboration with, and with international institutions, and if any of you are affiliated with universities here, you must have been contacted by Saudi universities. And we're increasing the number of local scholarships, which I'll be discussing uh, a bit more later. Now, our first university was established in 1958, and between 1958 and 2002, which is about, what, four decades? We had eight universities. And then, in just one decade, between 2003 and 2010, the number of universities in Saudi Arabia has tripled. Here, I'd like to make a stop at two of those universities. The first is the King Abdullah University of Science and Technology, KAUST, which I'm sure all of you have heard of. As a world-renowned research center built over 9,000 acres, it has faculty and students from all over the world to do research, to study, and to address global issues. The second stop, and I'm a bit biased here because I'm faculty at the second university, which is Princess Noor University. Princess Noor University is the first uh, all-female university. 
in Saudi Arabia. It's the largest in the region. It's built over, it's still being built actually, over eight million square uh, meters. It will be able to accommodate 40,000 female students. Um, the campus will have, of course, administration buildings, um, educational buildings. It will have conference centers, a huge library, student and faculty housing, in addition to a hospital with 500 beds. Now, private sector is also increasing in Saudi Arabia. It only started recently with the first university in 2000. But in one decade, we have eight private universities, excluding private colleges. And when I was talking about local scholarships, the government is funding students to study at these universities as well if they qualify. Now, key is, is uh, building new facilities. Now, I, uh, Ambassador Jaber mentioned today that uh, one way to tackle unemployment was to take the high school graduates and give them technical skills. So that's another thing the country is focusing on. Currently, we have 68 technical educational institutions, but within five years, those numbers will increase to 24, or 25, sorry, more technical colleges, 28 technical institutes, and over 50 industrial training institutes, and that also will help resolve some of the un unemployment problem. We're also encouraging innovation in science and technology. How? Well, first of all, over 240 million in grants for research every year. And the establishment of 10 research centers, 15 university technological innovation centers, and here we're collaborating with the King Abdullah City uh, for Science and Technology and at least uh, eight technology incubators, again, within collaboration with the King Abdullah City and other universities. Also included in this five-year plan is the expansion of the King Abdullah Scholarship Program. Now, um, if, if some of you don't know what that is, it started in 2005 with an agreement between King Abdullah and President Bush uh, to increase the number of scholarship students in the U.S. It was supposed to be a five-year program, but in 2010 it was extended for another five years. So why is this program so important and why did I choose it to be the focus of this presentation? Well, the mission of the King Abdullah Scholarship Program is to actively de develop and qualify human resources for two purposes, to be world competitive in the market and to be um, a high caliber basis for both universities, public and government, uh, and governments, uh, sorry, and private sectors. Now to achieve that mission, CASP, or the King Abdullah Scholarship Program, is offering scholarships in all of these degrees, from bachelor's all the way to medical fellowship. And what fields do you think we're sponsoring? Well, predominantly, it's gonna be medicine, um, with all its branches, pure sciences and the medical sciences. But is that all our job market needs? Certainly not. It's also sponsoring engineering, computer sciences, and business with all their branches as well. Now, how are these candidates selected? Well, if you're, and this is a, co a question I get common from university officials in particular. If you're an undergraduate student, you would have to have at least 90% on your high school diploma, 75% on your achievement, which is the three years of high school, and um, 70 on an aptitude test, which is kind of like an SAT here. If you're going for your bachelor's but already have a two-year diploma, you would have to have at least a GPA of 3.5 and no more than five years since your last degree. If you're going for your postgrads, then you would have to have a GPA of at least uh, 2.7, and again, no more than five years since your last degree. If you're going for medical fellowship or residency, it's even simpler. All you have to do is get admission from an institute accredited by the Ministry of Higher Education. Now, once these candidates are selected, what happens? We send them almost all over the world, from the United States to the Czech Republic, in different numbers to different degrees, of course. Can you imagine the collective experience that these young men and women will have when they come back to the country? Okay, before the students go, they're given a short orientation. They're told about their scholarship rights and responsibilities. It's just a three-day workshop in three main cities in Saudi Arabia, so we cram in as much as you can. Um, information about the country they're going to. As much social and psychological preparation you can give a student in three days. And sometimes guest speech, uh, speakers are invited from the Ministry of Higher Education or even from the country's 
um, they're going to, or former students to share their experiences. Now, once these lucky students come to the, or arrive in the countries they're supposed to be in, what do you think they get? Well, full tuition in any university, Ivy League or smaller ones. Monthly stipend. They get full medical and dental coverage. They get reimbursements for attending conferences, workshops, and symposia. They get rewards even for high GPAs and publishing papers. If they're married and have children, they even get financial support for spouse and children, and for spouses, they get another scholarship for the spouse. And even annual round-trip tickets throughout the years of study to Saudi Arabia and back. Now, every time I discuss the number of students worldwide, I remember that joke about the multimillionaire who was asked about his net worth, and his answer was before you ask the question or after you ask the question to signify how fast it increases. So when people ask me how many students we have, I want to say before you ask the question or after you ask the question. According to Mohi Stats, the Ministry of Higher Education, as of September 2010, we had 98,000 students worldwide. But Ambassador Jaber today mentioned there were over 100,000, and I agree with him totally. At the cultural mission here in DC alone, we get an average 300 to 500 a week. So are there students studying in Saudi Arabia? Certainly. The students abroad are only 18.5% of higher education students. This is a short diagram to show you how much we've jumped since 2005. We've had about 10,000 students and now it's 100,000. So in five years, we've increased tenfold. Okay, we're fourth, we're fourth in the world in the number of international students studying abroad. And I think that's impressive from a country so young as ours. And then if you compare it to number of residents, we're actually second in the world, following only Greece. If you noticed in the numbers in the schedule a few slides back, I had three types of scholarship students. Well, one we call the sponsored students, and those are the ones that are fully covered by the King Abdullah Scholarship Program. The second from their name are self-sponsored, and they come here with the hope of getting a scholarship once they finish the language program or start their academic degrees, and most often than not, that happens. Um, the third type is the employed scholarship students, and those are fully funded as well, but not by the King Abdullah Scholarship Program, but by other sects they come from, like universities or ministries or private businesses. Based on degree level, if you're wondering, the majority are students studying their bachelor's degree. Now, other means ESL, so that's kind of shady. So the majority is bachelor's followed by master's, and then doctoral and then medical fellowship. If you notice the, the division between male and female, females make up about 30% of scholarship students worldwide. If we break it down male and female degree, most males around the world are doing their bachelors with a 57%, and females are equally working on their bachelors and their masters, followed of course by doctoral residency and, and other programs. Now, what are these students mainly studying? Um, the highest majority of students all uh, around the world in the King Abdullah Scholarship Program are studying business, followed by engineering and computer science. If you go down to the lower numbers and the lower specialities, you'll find that they're doing um, journalism, mathematics, nursing, transportation. Now, this is no surprise to anybody. Top countries where the students studying. Lion's share, of course, is the United States of America. We have students in over 1,000 universities here, um, 30,000 in the US alone, followed by the UK, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Germany, Malaysia, France, China, and Austria. And I'd like to note here that I've taken out the Arab countries. Our students go to uh, the Middle East as well and Arab countries in Northern Africa. The only continent I think we don't have sponsored students in is South America, but we're working on that. Okay, so what are they doing in the countries? Well, they're getting a world-class education. Uh, in the United States, for example, they're going to the, to the top 10 universities. But is that all? No. They're breaking stereotypes and building bridges. They're taking every opportunity to teach about their country, whether it's one-on-one -on -one or in classrooms or on uh, International Week on campus. They're teaching about our attire, even even the controversial abaya or the beautiful jalabiya. They're sharing our food, the famous kapsa. 
and they're showing off their dance. By the way, those are the George Mason students at the Cherry Blossom in DC here. And they're showing the world how to write their names in our language. They're learning about American society and about the other countries that they're studying in. They're contributing with volunteer community service, visiting schools and nursing homes, sharing their compassion and their experiences. They're also raising the Saudi fla uh, flag high and proud alongside the American flag here and all other flags that they interact with. In 2005, King Abdullah addressed the media explaining the reason for this program with these wise words, for them to know the world and for the world to know them. In August of 2010, the media responded and acknowledged the wisdom and honor of this program by naming King Abdullah among the top 10 world leaders. Thank you for listening. At any rate, um, that was excellent. And uh, although she went very fast, it was <laughs> comprehensible. Okay. Um, since I had introduced um, uh, Dr. Uh, Ms. Rowe already, um, she will now come to the uh, podium and talk about uh, the surveys that she's conducted in the Arab world. And I think she's using the PowerPoint as well. If you can't see, please uh, feel free to move. Good evening. It's uh, my great pleasure uh, to be here this afternoon uh, and to address this extremely distinguished audience and also to showcase uh, some highlights from um, the research that we conduct at Gallup. Um, Anne introduced me by uh, saying that um, I'm a pollster. Uh, I'm a little more than a pollster. I'm a social scientist, and I work for the Gallup organization. Uh, Anne, you also mentioned why do they hate us and, and whether you know, we can explore this. This is definitely uh, a topic that uh, my research center has explored. I'm just afraid that it would take basically more than the reminder of this panel and into tomorrow to fully uh, explore these ideas with you. So for this afternoon, for this evening, I'm going to focus on entrepreneurship aspirations in the MENA region. I'm gonna tell you how we go about doing this research uh, which some of you may already be familiar with, and then I'll be uh, looking forward to hearing um, your feedback and, and your questions regarding uh, this work. Um, Dr. Modi focused on um, one very specific country, and I think Maggie will focus on also another, you know, the Qatar um, situation. Um, I'm going to bring you the 10,000-foot view so we have a very, very diverse region from Morocco all the way to Yemen. But I really want to bring you um, the, uh, the big picture view and from the angle of um, employment or lack thereof and looking at entrepreneurship and how entrepreneurship can be a pillar, a core pillar to address this uh, challenge that the whole region is facing, which is job creation. So as many of you know, uh, about 30% of the Arab world is between the ages of 15 and 29. So we have a huge demographic cohort. In fact, the cohort is about 100 million strong. And so this is actually the largest cohort to enter uh, in history to enter, or at least to try to enter um, the labor force. So it's certainly, it is a demographic challenge, but we can also see it as a demographic dividend. So we need to think about how can, how can we make the switch? How can we go from the challenge to 
the dividend. And one of the things that we can do is by looking at young Arabs as today's um, vital partners, if you like, with a stake in their societies, as opposed to viewing them as um, tomorrow's beneficiaries for whom we need to find employment. So to, to um, basically this whole work is, is the subject of uh, my research with the Center for Muslim Studies. And Gallup has been working in partnership with a nonprofit, non-governmental organization called Silatech. And um, Silatech is, it was created in 2008. It's uh, pursuant to the vision of Her Highness Sheha Moza. And Silatech's mission is to connect young Arabs with employment and enterprise opportunities in their respective countries. But before we can address um, this challenge, at least in a successful way, we need to measure it. And that's exactly what we do um, at Gallup. And our research focuses, for this particular um, effort, initiative, our research focuses on the voices of young Arabs. What we do is we measure their perceptions of um, basically the obstacles that they perceive in terms of being employed or creating a business. But we also want to better understand their aspirations and their dreams for a better future. So this, in turn, all this entire body of research can and will inform policies, and this is part of our dissemination um, efforts uh, in terms of initiatives to remove uh, these obstacles to employment and, and uh, entrepreneurship in those countries. So I'm going to focus on highlights from our last report. Um, just to give you a brief overview, I'll very, very briefly, I'll talk about methodology and how it is that, you know, how do we carry out this research. Um, we'll look at work preferences, whether people prefer, young people prefer to work in uh, the public sector or the private sector. We'll look at how young Arabs view entrepreneurship in terms of, you know, whether it's a good climate or not how many young Arabs uh, plan to start a business, what kind of demographic attributes and other attributes do we, can we see in uh, those aspiring entrepreneurs. And then we'll look at um, two key areas, perceptions or attitudes toward um, business entry uh, variables as well as business outcome variables. And then we'll take it all together and, and look at key um, learnings. In terms of the methodology, uh, we, are, we cover pretty much every single country in the Arab League, with the exception of Oman. Uh, in terms of Somalia, which is also a member of the Arab League, we can't really be polling in Somalia for obvious reasons. There's one region of Somalia where we can safely send uh, our interviewers because all of, uh, all of this work is actually done in face-to-face -face interviews. So in Somaliland, we can actually send people without them being killed. We use uh, random probability samples, which simply means that uh, every single person in the country, based on your sampling frame, would have an equal chance of being selected for this um, survey. And as I just mentioned, we conduct face-to-face -face interviews of Arab nationals. This is an issue for uh, the GCC countries that have very large non-national populations. Um, and uh, the cohorts are age 15 and older. We conduct at least 1,000 interviews twice a year. So we end up with pretty, and that's for every single country. So we have very large sample sizes that um, enable us to do some pretty uh, interesting research. And we, you know, interview uh, basically the whole gamut 
rich people, poor people, the, the entire socioeconomic spectrum. Uh, we're not only in urban areas, a lot of the times the survey research work that you will see will only focus on urban areas because it's a lot easier. We don't do that. We really have more nationally representative samples that also cover the urban areas. And then the margin of error, plus or minus three to four percent, depending on um, the country. Okay. So we know anecdotally um, that there's a, a preference for uh, work for the government as opposed to the private sector. So let's take a look. Let's see if we can measure this. In terms of all young Arabs, so that's, that's across all the countries that I um, referenced, between the ages of 15 and 29, we can see that they're twice as uh, likely to say that they would rather work for the government than for a business. Now, about a quarter say that either would be fine. Now, what's really interesting is if you look at among people, among young people who say they are planning to start a business in the next 12 months, so we call them the aspiring entrepreneurs, it's still a preference. They are really leaning toward government employment as opposed to um, private sector work. So this is uh, a pretty interesting of, uh, look at things. I promise this is the busiest slide you will see in the entire presentation. I didn't even put the numbers. I, I, I hate, you know, having a lot of, you know, lots of really busy things and numbers. But here this is actually, and I'll just do some highlights. It really shows you that there's a, a, a lot of variation across the region. It, it really is reflective of the great diversity that you have across the, the greater MENA region. So it is this preference for being employed by the government is highest in Kuwait, where 90% of young people say they would rather work for the government than um, a business. You go all the way down to uh, say, we'll stop at the Somali Somaliland. Here you have a completely different picture because we have 14% of Somalilanders between the ages of 15 and 29 who say that they would rather work for the government. 74% of them say that they would rather work for a business. So when you are in the, the bottom parts, it's not like everybody wants to work prefers to work for uh, the, uh, the private sector. And the perfect example of this is Libya, where we have 13% of young Libyans who say that they would prefer to work for the government. But then you have about a third, 30, it's actually 33%, who say that they would um, prefer to work in the private sector. And then you have almost half, 46%, who say either. So it's, it's really a, a very uh, varied picture. And then what I circled on, on the slide, Lebanon. Lebanon is basically the country that divides this entire list between above Lebanon uh, is where people, a majority, at least a majority of young people would rather work for the government and below Lebanon is uh, a minority below 50% who would rather work for the government. That's it, no more pain. We're going with the next one. Okay, so if we have this leaning toward um, govern, government work, we know that obviously uh, government employment provides more stability, more security, and that sort of thing. But it is also important to look at attitudes toward entrepreneurship and entrepreneurs. Are they positive, negative, neutral? So let's take a look. So um, across the region, again, uh, among young Arabs between the ages of 15 and 29, we have pretty solid, pretty strong majorities who, you know, for the most part, have pretty favorable opinions of uh, entrepreneurs. And they also tell us 
that uh, their communities are good places for rising, aspiring entrepreneurs to launch their business. So overall, it's a pretty positive picture. Now, I want to show you, um, we asked this question, uh, are you planning to start a business in the next 12 months? And this is, this is a proxy for really measuring people who have thought about what it means to be um, a business owner and have done some of the homework to, to you know, make this a reality in the next few months. So across the, the set of countries that we surveyed uh, in the Arab League, 15% of young people say they, they're planning to start a business in the next year. Now, looking at a number like this in, in isolation, that doesn't really help us. So I want to bring you the view from the United States. Oops, didn't go very well. Okay, you can't see it, I don't know why, but it is 4%. So 4% of Americans between the ages of 15 and 29 say they plan to start a business in the next 12 months. So there may be obviously different reasons for this, but we have much, um, much greater interest in entrepreneurship in, in, across the Arab League. Let's look at differences um, across groups of countries. So here we group the countries according to their um, GDP, national GDP uh, information, with the high-income countries being, of course, the GCC countries, middle-income countries being um, uh, places like uh, Syria, Algeria, and the like, and then the low-income countries, which uh, it would fall into Mauritania, Somaliland, Sudan, and so forth. So we see here that there's actually a lot of variation depending on where people live. Uh, where the highest, the, the, the proportions of, of people who are more likely to want to start a business don't come from the poorest countries, but actually from the more middle-income countries. So what do aspiring entrepreneurs look like? Okay. So not surprisingly, we can see that men are actually far more likely, almost twice as likely, to say that they want to start a business compared to young Arab women. Uh, for men, business creation intentions are highest in the countries that are highlighted there. It's at least 30% of them. I'm not going to read the list. Uh, for women, um, we have at least 30% again in those four countries, and as you can see, there is some overlap. What other attributes can help us define uh, aspiring entrepreneurs in the region? Well, we know that they're more likely to be employed and to be employed full-time. That's very important to know. We also know, and this is not only Gallup research, uh, there's an entire body of research uh, is looking at the relationship between entrepreneurship and civic engagement, and this is borne out by our research as well, where uh, aspiring entrepreneurs are far more likely to say that they volunteer their time or that they have helped a stranger in the past week. One last point on this slide, which is extremely important, is that the people who are most, most likely to be creating a business are also the people who are most likely to leave their countries permanently. Okay, I promised we would look at business entry items versus uh, business outcome items, so here we go. In terms of business entry, we see that in terms of looking at um, uh, feeling confident that you know, I can find the people qualified to do the job that I need to be done in my business, we have a, a pretty strong majority of people, who, of young people who say so. 
The picture doesn't look as good when we look at two other extremely important aspects to, to launch a business, and that's the paperwork that's necessary to create a business, at least in the formal economy, and also access to capital, and more specifically, access to a loan to start your business. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done and there's some variation across countries, but this is actually um, pretty true uh, in all the, the countries where we do this research. Um, so lots and lots of, of efforts will need to go into removing these obstacles so that the perceptions can improve. Now, in terms of business outcomes, um, the picture is a little better than for business entry variables. But as you can see here, we have 59% uh, of young Arabs who say that they trust their assets and property will be safe at all times. This is a pretty important business outcome. With 34% who say no. Then we have less than half, 48%, who tell us that they would trust the government to let, them be, to let their business be very profitable. And 42% say no. So here, there is an opportunity for governments, policymakers, to work on these issues to be improving uh, these perceptions. Taking it all together, looking at um, a summary of the research, and I, I just, in, in the time that I have, and I can see that I'm getting even less time now, um, we know that uh, we can see that entrepreneurship is definitely a critical component to be uh, addressing the challenge of the youth bulge. We also see that uh, a majority of young people prefer to work for the government, but there, there was a, a fairly large proportion of people who were undecided. So that could be an opportunity to, I say here, sell the benefits of um, being a, uh, an entrepreneur. At the same time, there are widespread perceptions of important business entry and outcome um, barriers that exist. And finally, and very importantly, it appears that those who are the most committed to being entrepreneurs are also the ones who are the most likely to emigrate. And this seems to suggest that business formation may not benefit their countries of origin. Thank you very much. Magali Rowe. We'll turn to Maggie Mitchell next. Maggie Mitchell-Salem. Good evening. And let me just figure out how to work this. Do I hit start first? Hmm. Hmm. Hold on. Sometimes I think that marrying Dells with Max is a lot harder than anything else we're discussing. That's just, ah, perfect. Hold on one second. Uh, in the meantime, while the presentation's coming up, I just wanted to say good evening to everyone here and who has stuck it out through the end of day one of the two-day conference. I'd also like to note that I think the organizers did an excellent job of putting together this panel because it turns out that each of us are focusing on a very different but complementary area. And, um, and so my compliments to the first two speakers. I'm actually not going to focus entirely on Qatar. In fact, I'm not focusing on Qatar um, at all. I'm focusing on a new organization um, which has the good fortune, um, but also the misfortune, of having the same name as a very large organization based in Qatar, and that is the Qatar Foundation. Um, Qatar Foundation International is based in Washington, D.C., and is something very different, um, although benefiting from the work and from the vision of Her Highness Sheikha Moza, who was the head of the Qatar Foundation and who founded this institution, as well as Silatec. Um, so let me proceed. 
The mission of Cutter Foundation International, you can see it there and read it at your leisure. You can also find this on our website, qfi.org. The mission of Cutter Foundation International is to build bridges between young people, younger than the ones that I think have been focused on so far. We're focusing on middle and high school age students because we firmly believe that if you wait until someone turns 18, you might have waited too long. And we're trying to bring cross-cultural programs to young people in the US, in other parts of the world, and yes, Qatar as well, and bring them together to learn, to lead, to listen, to find out about the other before they go to college. And for them to have ideas of the world and their place in the world at a much younger age. Freedom of information means that a 10-year-old can know as much as I do. Um, and I, I can say that my 8-year-old knows a lot more about bugs than I'll ever know. So information is there. But as we know, information has no meaning without context, without giving it something much richer than the words on a page. And we also all know that information can be distorted. And if you give young people a chance to interact with each other at young ages and give them a chance to see the world and be a part of it, we think that that can make a significant difference. And so that's what we're trying to do. And I would just read the part that talks about our vision, which is of a world that embraces and respects diversity, values lifelong learning, and empowers individuals to take action to shape their future. But that's what we're trying to do with these young people in our, in our inaugural programs. So a word about our donor, just to clear up any misunderstanding. Our donor, unlike us, was founded in 1995. We are operational for the past 18 months. So we're young, still growing, and still taking in ideas and creating programs. It was founded by uh, the Emir, and the head of the foundation in Doha is Her Highness. And their mission is complementary to ours, but different. Enough about our donor. These are the areas in which we're operating. Uh, global learning is the one that focuses on bringing young people together uh, through programs focusing, again, on middle and high school age students. Uh, these are programs that I'll discuss a little bit later. Community engagement. Community engagement is an integral part of everything we do. It is not only a programmatic pillar, it's a cross-cutting theme for us. We believe that all participants in our programs should give back some of what they've benefited from, and that's not just presentations when they go back home, but giving their time as part of our programs. So we have a volunteer service component to all of the programs that we design. Global public health is a new area that we're still working on. Scholarships, of course, if you're in middle and high school, you're looking at going to college. We want to provide opportunities for young people who meet a set of criteria that we are still forming from all parts of the world to benefit from the educational opportunities that are available in Doha at Education City, but also at other institutions around the world. So stay tuned for scholarships. And special opportunities is our area to foster new ideas that may not fit into any of the other areas that we cover. Because we really do believe that there are ideas out there that we may not have thought of. And that if they come to us and we think they fit our overall mission, then we're interested in considering them. So that's a word about us, just to give you some thoughts. The cross-cutting themes I discussed one before, which is um, volunteerism. But others include collaborating with the best organizations in the field. We don't want to own any of the space that we're in. We can't reach every young person in the world. And we know that there are other people out there, including some of the names behind me, who are equally interested for other reasons in reaching young people and designing programs that engage them effectively, whether it be in academic disciplines or just as, um, as people who can have a conversation and not scream. And if there's anything that we can do at the end of this, if we can produce people who can disagree and walk away and shake hands in the atmosphere we all live in that's been alluded to before, I think that that would just be a huge coup. But enough of the soapbox. 
Um, we support multi-year programs, recognizing that the programs we're engaging in require a long-term commitment. We seek areas, uh, ways to incorporate our programs with appropriate technology. Again, this goes to my earlier point that we cannot, not only can we not reach everyone, we can't fly them all over the world, much as we'd love to throw them all on Qatar Airways planes and take them wherever they would like to go. It's not going to happen. It's costly. So how else can we reach young people and put them together um, without actually putting them in the same room? And last, we emphasize cross-cultural collaboration and diversity. So our programs, what are we actually doing? What are we doing with these young people in places like DC, Doha, Boston, Portland, Honolulu, and Sao Paulo, Brazil? We're teaching them Arabic, obviously not the ones in Doha. We're also providing them with science and technology programs that the teachers engage on as well as the students. And we're, in doing all of this, none of this is unique. Let me just point this out. Teaching Arabic and investing in science and technology programs is actually um, a well-worn path, and again, one that many of these organizations are investing in. What we're trying to bring to this is a bit of a different angle, and that is having teachers in Qatar and teachers in the US talk to each other. Some of the concerns are the same. Teachers have to do a lot, often with very little training. How can they work together to build a curriculum that engages their students? And we've already organized, with the help of Cisco, some telepresence meetings, putting these teachers together to do just that. And we're looking forward to having many more of these. For the students, um, we did take students from DC and Boston to Qatar during their spring break after they'd been studying Arabic for six months. They met with Qatari students from sister schools. We have a network of schools in Qatar, public schools, so that we're reaching Qatari students and not just expatriates. And, the, uh, and a boys' and a girls' school, because if you know anything about Qatari public schools, they are gender segregated. And so each school had two sister schools in Qatar. And the students met and interacted. And then we took all of those students to DC and Florida for a science trip in July. And it was astonishing to watch these kids who had had a week to interact previously, and actually the girls had a little less time than the boys did, to watch them all together for 10 days and to see the sort of community that they built. And I can tell you, and I know I'm in a sympathetic audience, if you could have built a bubble over those young people and protected them from the insanity around them, it would have been a wonderful thing. Because for a moment in time, it didn't matter what label they wore. They were kids. They had differences. And that was good. Because we don't want everyone to look and sound the same. We want them to be different. But we want those differences to be respected. And it was a really wonderful environment. Um, the kids noticed that the adults had a really hard time with some of this, because there were some Qatari teachers and American adults on the trip. The kids did fine. So good news. Evolution might just work. But in noticing the tensions between some of the adults and some of the conversations that were taking place, two of the young cutteries um, came up. Well, actually, one young cuttery and one young Boston student, who had become very, very good friends, decided that the kids needed just that bubble to operate in and to talk about the difficult issues that are out there. The idea that as one of the young Qatari boys said to me, but miss, the Qatari girls aren't supposed to swim in the public pool. This is when we were at Disney World. And all of the American girls, all of the boys were in the pool swimming together. And I noticed the Qatari girls wanted to go in, but they couldn't go in when that whole group was there. And so I asked them all to leave. And they did, and they were very gracious about it. But the young Qatari boy said, I would not let my 13-year-old sister swim in this pool. And I said, I understand, but this is their choice. I'm not going to tell them what to do. Some will, some won't. And that is their choice. 
And I can tell you, quite honestly, that it was a very difficult conversation for me because my response, and I've spent a lot of time in the Middle East, but my response would have been typically American. But that's not fair. That's not an issue of fairness. It's an issue of cultural standards. And so I realized in thinking through my response that I would not have been responding in a way that made sense. We would have been speaking on different levels. And so when the two students came to me with the idea of developing an online forum where the kids could talk about some of these issues, we are calling it the tough stuff on the forum, but also fun things like games and books they like and movies they've seen. Um, one of the Cuttery girls I think is gonna grow up to be House, if any of you watch House. She's amazing. Um, so it's to give them that protected zone and we're gonna be expanding it carefully because when you build a protected space, any of you who are on Gulf 2000 know that often what you think is a safe area is actually not very safe and people expose each other's comments and that's not right. So again, hoping that kids can do better than adults. We're going to carefully vet who joins the community. But that's what they built. That was their idea. And we're incredibly proud of them. Um, and again, that goes to that fourth special opportunities category that QFI has. Um, when we see a good idea, we like to try to encourage it. And this is one that most definitely fit our mission. And we're very proud of Damon and Fahad, uh, who are both now on their way to Alexandria, Egypt, for a young civil um, leaders conference, civil society leaders conference. So we're just thrilled with them. Um, this is just a little blurb from Fast Company, which did an article on this online forum that we've built. And they said it perfectly. Participants on both sides come from demographics that are likely to be future influencers. It is not every American teenager who is able to travel to Qatar or Saudi Arabia or any other country in the Middle East. And it's not every resident of Qatar that can travel to America. I myself benefited from a Fulbright and went to Syria never having stepped foot outside of the United States ever. This was in 1990 when Hafez al-Assad was ka'idna il al-ebed, but he was Al-Ebid caught up with him. Um, so it was, uh, it was an amazing experience. But again, I was 21, 22, so I've now completely dated myself. Um, and you know, I, I'm glad that Her Highness had the vision to create an organization that could carry out a program like this for younger people, because it's too late to wait till you're 21 or 22 to see the world, or at least experience difference in the world if you can't see it directly. So uh, with that, QFI in the future, we're, we're very happy. You can see the last line because I, too, am being cut off so you can go home and have dinner um, or go to the Iraqi consulate. Uh, we are actively seeking partners and ideas and ways of working with others. We, we don't own the landscape. You have some idea of what we're interested in doing. But all of this, going to the title of the conference, um, Going Where, I can't speak to U.S.-Arab relations on the political space. But I can say, having watched these kids, and again, it's not a Gallup sample size, so, and I don't know that we randomly sampled very well, but you, we took inner city kids and kids from Qatar and we put them together. And, and they went places, physically, mentally, emotionally, socially. So I have a lot of hope, and, and I think the uh, Saudi ambassador is quite correct. This is a resource. Um, I have four kids, so I can also say it's a challenge. But the young people are a resource, and they'll surprise us if we give them the chance to think and be and build that world that I think we'd all rather live in. So with that, good evening. Thank you. Thank you very much, Maggie. We're running out of time. John Moran will be our last speaker. He'll uh, do some summing up and perhaps um, commenting and asking questions. We won't have time for questions from the floor, but Dr. Anthony has said that the National Council will put the uh, questions online that have been submitted. John? Uh, 
Good afternoon. I'll be very succinct in my role as a commentator to this uh, distinguished panel. Uh, if may, I may, I'd like to uh, touch on the, the issue that uh, some of our previous speakers and uh, certainly Dr. Ahalaf and uh, Dr. Ho uh, brought up today, and that is the burgeoning youth population uh, in the Arab world uh, and its uh, implications, not just economic implications, uh, but indeed strategic implications uh, as well. This is a particularly uh, important challenge um, uh, for Saudi Arabia, as, uh, as many of us have noted. Um, and it is a, uh, uh, a difficult issue to address in light of the very large expatriate uh, population um, in, uh, uh, throughout the Gulf, but particularly in Saudi Arabia. Uh, if I recall correctly, according to uh, a 2009 Saudi census, there were approximately 18.7 million Saudi citizens and 8.4 million uh, expatriate workers, which of course is a very large uh, percentage of the population. I don't know if that is correct, but I'm sure Dr. Anthony will, will correct me if it's, uh, if it's not. Uh, and I remember, I've served twice in Saudi Arabia, most recently in Riyadh, uh, but when I was in uh, Jeddah in, in the 1990s in our consulate there, uh, the conventional wisdom among the expatriate community uh, was that Saudis were not willing for complex cultural and social reasons uh, to take entry-level positions, hourly positions, uh, in, uh, in the services industry. I, I remember one expatriate telling me uh, th there was a syndrome called SIC, Saudi in charge, uh, whereby uh, you had Saudis in senior management positions, uh, but not many in junior man management positions and virtually none uh, in uh, <coughs> entry level uh, or indeed hourly positions. And I think this has uh, been conventional wisdom for some time. So I was very surprised when I, I returned to Saudi Arabia as public affairs counselor in uh, <clears throat> 2008 uh, to find so many young Saudis working in Starbucks, uh, working in grocery stores, and uh, doing a very good job, being uh, very well integrated into the workplace and with their Saudi and non-Saudi uh, uh, colleagues. and. Uh, it, I, I think, you know, we, I, I don't want to under, overstate that trend, uh, but there's a certain pragmatism uh, that I've noticed among uh, uh, both the Saudi leadership and the Saudi population. Uh, there is not uh, a cultural, uh, from what I saw, predisposition not to take uh, these, uh, these entry-level uh, entry uh, positions. And I think that's something that perhaps bodes well. Uh, for the country's effort uh, to implement Saudiization, as they call it, and find jobs for uh, this uh, uh, youthful demo uh, demographic uh, bulge in the population. Uh, I'd like to touch on also um, uh, the efforts in, uh, in education, which my colleagues uh, have, have addressed. And, uh, if there's one thing, I've served in several, seven Arab countries, if there's one commonality I found uh, among all of them, it's the absolute obsession uh, with education for their children. This is something that cuts across class lines, it cuts across sectarian divisions. Uh, it, it, uh, it, it, it's something that liberals, progressives in Saudi Arabia have in common with uh, conservatives. And that is, they see education from a pragmatic sense as something that will better the life uh, of their children. And I think this is, again, something uh, important um, in looking at, at uh, uh, work for youth in Saudi Arabia and, and other parts of the, of the Arab world. The Saudis, my impression is, are approaching this problem in the same way they did uh, the challenge of industrialization. As you know, they went very, very quickly uh, from a pre-modern uh, uh, economy uh, to a very modern infrastructure. And uh, they did this by taking an innovation here from outside, uh, a model from there, 
and uh, bringing it in, assuring that it was uh, within their own cultural context. Uh, but it bespeaks a very uh, non-ideological uh, approach to dealing with problems. A very, again, a very pragmatic approach. Um, so uh, uh, I think there's a good possibility, um, and I would say we in the, uh, in the US Embassy when I was there um, were fairly optimistic about the uh, direction of, uh, of Saudi educational reform uh, often I get the impression people view it as uh, the leadership trying to impose modern values, uh, uh, values of tolerance and uh, understanding, mutual understanding among cultures uh, on a population that's not ready for it. But in fact, uh, from what I've seen, the population is very interested, uh, again, <laughs> obsessively so, um, in education. Uh, and if, and um, uh, I think generally agree with the approach um, of the Saudi government in that regard.